hello, and welcome to CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast. I'm Rob Doubleday, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the first episode of our new series on science advice and government, brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at Cambridge. In this series, we aim to bring together in conversation practitioners of scientific advice with people who study the scientific advisory process. We aim to develop that conversation, which we hope will be interesting and useful for those scientists who may be considering doing more science advice and those policymakers who want to use science advice better. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has placed science advice really at centre stage. It's been vital to many of the most important decisions governments have been making. And because of that, of course, it's come under great scrutiny. It's come under scrutiny as a process. Has that process been inclusive? Has it been timely? Also, individual scientific advisors have been scrutinised and come under uh, the public spotlight. How do we make sense of those kinds of pressures? How can the scientific advisory system learn from its experience of the COVID um, pandemic to improve and build into the future? Certainly for the first episode, we couldn't be more fortunate than having uh, Sir Patrick Valance, the UK's government chief scientific advisor, and uh, Sheila Jasmoff, the fourth-timer professor of science and technology studies at Harvard, join us in discussion. Patrick began his career as an academic medic, professor of medicine at UCL, before joining GlaxoSmithKline, where latterly he was president for R&D. Sheila Jasnoff is a pioneer of the field of science and technology studies. She was the first chair of the first department of science and technology studies at Cornell University in 1991, and has been based at Harvard since 2002. Uh, Sheila's written many books and articles on science advice, science and government, including in 1990, the fifth branch, Science Advisors as Policymakers, a book which really opened up the field of science advice to academic scrutiny. Sheila, Patrick, it's a great pleasure to be speaking to you today. I want to begin perhaps actually with you, Patrick, and cast your mind back to the spring of 2018 when you actually uh, took over as the UK's government chief scientific advisor. I mean, why did you take the job? What did you hope to achieve back in what seems like, you know, a lifetime ago? Well, it certainly does seem like a lifetime ago. My, my career, I, I spent 20 years as a clinical academic. I was um, professor of medicine, head of the Department of Medicine at UCL. And I swapped from that to move into industry to become head of R&D at GSK. And essentially, I can see my, my career in 10-year blocks. Um, you know, I did two 10-year blocks in clinical academia and then 10 years at GSK. And I was initially approached about being uh, chief scientific advisor. And I said, no, I'm not interested. And I did exactly what I'd done in previous occasions when I'd said things like that. I went back and thought, well, why aren't I interested? And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, actually, I am interested. And I'm interested because of the breadth of science, the importance of science for government decision making and the prominence of science in everyday life. And uh, I thought, yes, this is a challenge. And it was that mixture of opportunity in terms of the importance of science, the timeliness of this in relation to science and governments, and the challenge that I thought that would also provide in a personal level that attracted me. And I thought, yes, I'm going to go for that. I'm going to have a go and see if I can make a difference in terms of science advice and government. And so who appoints a government chief scientific advisor in the UK? What's the process? 
Well, it's, it's a public appointments process. And um, so the, the role is advertised and uh, it's appointed by, I mean, the formal appointment is made or recommendation appointment is made by the cabinet secretary. So the most senior civil servant in the, in the UK. And it went through, I can't remember, I think it must have been sort of seven rounds of different processes from headhunters and interviews and various other assessments, uh, culminating in an interview chaired by the Cabinet Secretary with others present. There was the President of the Royal Society was one of the other members. Um, So external scientists plus civil servants who make the recommendation. And then formally, it's a prime ministerial sign off at the end of that. But it's a civil servant's role advertised and appointed in in a normal public appointments process. So did your kind of understanding of the role change during the the process? You say seven rounds or so. So, I mean, that's quite an involved process. Did your view of what the job entailed change during that time? Well, I mean, because as always, when you go, when you make a sort of complete change like this, and I had exactly this experience when I moved from academia into industry, you sort of think you understand something about the job when you make that move. And of course, once you're in it, you realise you understand very little about it. And the truth is, yes, of course, I learned as I went through and I got lots of feedback. I spoke to people who'd done the role before. I spoke to people who are currently doing advisory roles. So I, I, I became more aware of what the job might mean but you don't really know till you start something. And in a way, that's part of the attraction for me anyway, that you're making a bit of a leap of faith and you're going to have to learn quickly. You're going to have to absorb things quickly and you're going to have to set it, settle into a completely new environment in order to be able to be capable of doing the job that you've been appointed to do. And that's part of the attraction is to sort of that, that rapid learning to try and understand how best to do it. I mean, when you started, did you have in your mind things you hoped to achieve? Did, yeah, well, did you have a sense of what you could bring to the role and what you would like to, to do with it? Well, one of the most influential discussions I had, I had lunch with Gus O'Donnell, who was a previous cabinet secretary, and, and I was asking him about what he thought this role really meant. And his comments to me were, from his perspective, as having been cabinet secretary, that science was good in parts across government. There were pockets of excellence. Um, but it wasn't sort of good right the way across the board and it wasn't consistently good and it wasn't as influential as it should be. And in his words, he said, if you go back 50 years, economics was in that position. It was sort of there and it was there in parts and it was sometimes used and sometimes wasn't. And he said, you should try and make science as influential as an embedded in government thinking as economics has been for the past 20 or 30 years or so. And I think that's exactly right. Um, And so I came in with the view that science needed to be embedded in the system, needed not to be something off to one side that when somebody thought, I've got a science question, I'll go and ask the person in a white coat, but rather it needed to be part of every discussion, every policy consideration, every operational consideration where appropriate. So that the scientific method, scientific thinking and engineering became very much part of everyday life in Whitehall. So that was certainly a big, a big aim. And then, of course, there are some specific areas that are clearly important for every government and need to be top of the list of of things that government chief scientific advisors worry about, which include climate change and the response to that include the rapid advancement of various areas of science and technology that will move into innovation and change the way life and society works. Those things become, you know, things that, of course, you know you're going to do. But it was the bigger objective of saying, how can you really embed this 
in a government in a way that means government has to think scientifically as it approaches problems. And I mean, if we could sort of draw a, a distinction between the two years that you had as government chief scientific advisors before COVID be- became the, the principal concern, and then the, the latter two years, if we think of the first two years, what would you say were your biggest kind of surprises, biggest successes, biggest regrets of those first two years? Well, um, in terms of biggest surprises, one one of the very pleasant surprises was to find out that there were indeed pockets of science excellence right the way across government. And a big surprise to me, and probably it shouldn't have been, given my background as a, you know, an academic and an and industry, was I didn't I was really unaware of some of the public sector research establishments that we have across the country and what they did and how they fitted into the system. I just didn't know about them as I should have done. I knew of some of them. And so that was a, a great eye-opener for me about what an untapped potential those organisations were. The second thing that was a, a, a surprise on the sort of uh, other side was how phenomenally complicated and siloed government can be. And because of that, you often end up in situations where it's very difficult to work out where single point accountability lies. And of course, this is a big issue in business and big companies. You're always fighting to try and work out where does single point accountability lie? How can you streamline things for decision making? And of course, you have that in spades in government. It's really a very common uh, problem that you have multiple people all working on the same sort of area, but it's unclear where this actually sits in terms of the ultimate decision maker. So that was a learning experience to work out how to work in that system and how to try to work out where the points of influence were because at the end of the day my job is an advisory role it's not an operational role it's not a delivery role it's to give advice to help others make policy decisions in the best way they can or to in some cases, make delivery or operational um, things. But again, my job in that is advisory. So really working out how that system works and where the points of influence were and how people were thinking in that very complicated and inevitably siloed system, I think was a really important part of the first couple of years. That was a very interesting account of, of what were some of the surprises. It would be good to hear you know, one or two instances where you felt you were able to, to make a positive difference and perhaps one or two instances where, or maybe one instance where you kind of regret things that didn't quite work as you'd hoped. Yeah, one of the things that happened very, very early on was, um, and it was partly down to Jeremy Hayward, who was the cabinet secretary at the time, who I discussed this with, building on that question of how can you embed science? He said, well, why don't you do a review and find out really where we are? And and that led to a report that um, came out probably about a year or so after I entered government, the Science Capability Review, where we really just asked some simple questions about what the state of science in various departments was and uh, overall was it meeting the sorts of goals that government needed from it and you know one of the revelations was that some big departments if you ask the question what's the percentage of their total spend that goes on science or on r&d it's a fraction of one percent and you know the world i just come from if you were spending a fraction of one percent on that you'd define yourself as a low growth, non-innovative commodity company. Well, that can't possibly be what government means to be. And so there were things that came into that report, which have turned out to be quite important in terms of skills, talent, tools, 
resource going into science and engineering, the need for departments to be able to articulate clearly their areas of research interest. What is it they don't know that they'd like to know? What would help them to have a science system defined in departments? You know, who is your chief scientific advisor? What does he or she have around them? What's the process for that feeding into the department? So that report actually has turned out to be a really crucial blueprint and has been picked up in the whole government reform agenda as we think about moving, for example, you know, we, we found out that the government fast stream, the intake system for sort of bright young things to come in and become the future leaders, 10% of the people coming in on that had a science or engineering degree. Well, I don't know what the right number is, but it's not 10%. I mean, and so things like that have become quite important benchmarks for how we try and move this sort of science and engineering into the heart of government. So I think that's a success to have got that going. And it's been adopted, as I say, as, as part of government reform. And people are now really working on the aspects of that right the way across government. And part of that, of course, is about one of the key things of science advice, which is being able to bring in evidence in a way that enables ministers and others to understand as best they can the uncertainties around an area, what drives those uncertainties, and what approaches may be taken to reduce those uncertainties through experimentation or other approaches. So that was a, um, a success. The other success I'd pick out was the a chief scientific advisors network, which we've really got working well, I think, um, to have a, a, a chief scientist in every department and for that group to get together weekly and to talk about things that cross government. And it turns out, of course, that that's one of the very few fora there are across government, which works right the way across. And the scientists turn out to be quite a good mechanism to get some of the join up and glue between departments when tackling big areas. And that, I think, has been successful both in terms of the calibre of people appointed and the way in which they work together uh, collectively. And then, you know, in terms of you know, what, in retrospect, didn't work as well and so on, I think you know, some of the ways in which I framed advice to begin with, I don't think I understood exactly how to get that right. And that took a bit of learning. And it's sometimes difficult to get into the places you need to get into because you need to get to the right individuals. And that took a lot of work. And uh, I did get in and, and, and have several meetings with the then prime minister, but it took work to get there. And so I think working out how to get into the right place to be able to give influence is quite an important part of the role. And recognising that your job is science advice. It's not policy formation. It's not operational delivery. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you, Patrick, to hear, you know, how somebody like yourself with obviously a huge amount of experience um, comes into government and has to, to some extent, relearn how to how to operate. The context of working in government is, is different from that in academia and industry. And of course, what you're learning is, is very much how to operate in, in a system of government that that's grown up over over many years. So I'm interested to, to draw in Sheila at this point about, you know, when you listen to Patrick's account of his first couple of years, Sheila, to what extent does this sound to you distinctly UK sort of story? Or, or, or do you think there are common threads to the way that, that science and government interact that, that you can see in, in, in other countries too? 
Thanks, Rob. And uh, thanks, Patrick. That was a really interesting account of your finding your way into the role of chief science advisor. The history of the science advisory role in America is quite different uh, in the sense that I think the, the collaboration between science and government was far more entrenched and diversified, possibly across the entire spectrum of government agencies before it became crystallized into a science advisory role. So if one were telling the history of how this came about in America, one would point to the wartime role of a man named Veneva Bush, who was an MIT professor who advised President Franklin D. Roosevelt during the war. And of course, everybody knows the story of the atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project, and the very salient role of physics and national security in the formation of the history of science advice in the US. It's interesting that Sir Patrick's background is in medicine in particular, because until very recently, I think with the appointment of Eric Lander, most of the science advisors since the war in America being physicists are closely tied to the hard science side of developing weapon systems. And it's only with Eric Lander that the attention seems to have shifted away more in the direction of, of medicine. So I think that the, the science advisory role in America has been far more pointedly political than what is being described for the UK, that in a sense, the science advisory role in the White House is always a troubleshooting activity between the political side of giving science advice and the technical side of producing the science in the first place. And just not to dwell on this for an enormous amount, I mean, just the, just the comparison between the US and the UK would be fascinating in and of itself. But I think if one looks across the channel to the European countries, one has yet a different uh, feel for how the science advisory mechanisms work there. Uh, one thing that has always struck me about the Anglophone countries is the emphasis on this word science and some sort of tacit assumption that whatever it is that government is doing, it's not sufficiently scientific. One really hears very little of that kind of plaintive hand-wringing when one goes into either France or Germany. And I think that the, the one key difference is that the word that they might use might be more like expert and not science. And then the organization of the delivery of science and science advice has been quite different in France, which generally has a far more technocratic spirit guiding its high level advisory processes. And in Germany, which has long established advisory mechanisms and institutes that work very closely with parliament um, and a quite different tradition of appointing parliamentary science advisors from what one sees in either the UK or the US. And I think that that's led, I mean, I'd be really interested to hear what Sir Patrick's commentary is on the last couple of years, because I think during the pandemic, it has led to a rather different set of relationships between the advisors and what government has been struggling with for the last two years. 
It's really interesting, Sheila. And uh, I think the other countries that are worth reflecting on in relation to different systems, the ones that are most similar to, I think, what happens in the UK are probably New Zealand, Australia, Canada, who've got systems more similar to the one that, that, that I've described. And then places like India are interesting as well in terms of the science advice mechanism, which also doubles up as essentially the person who determines distribution of research funding. So there, there's interesting different models across the, across the world, I think, in the way this comes about. That's really, I mean, it's a study in and of itself, how the crystallization of a science advisory apparatus fitted into the pre-existing politics of science policy in each of these countries. But I think what you described, Sir Patrick, of the Anglophone parliamentary systems uh, joining together in a certain set of similarities points to an important side note that to some degree it's the pre-existing political structures that have given birth to science advisory mechanisms that are then fitted to those structures and not that science and technology have evolved a kind of universal model for how to funnel science advice into government. So I think that's a recognition that scientists might actually stop to think about, that, that it's the politics shaping the structures and the channels of science advice and not the science that is shaping the delivery of the knowledge into the governmental systems. I wonder if we might continue this conversation now with more sort of direct reference to the last two years where you know, science advice has been centre stage because of the kinds of urgent and knowledge intensive decisions that have needed to be taken because of the COVID pandemic. So pa Patrick, I wonder if you could I mean, perhaps pick up this question about how science advisory systems work differently in different countries and perhaps begin by reflecting on how you found it to work sort of in terms of international collaboration over the past two years. How, you know, what role have you played as a government chief scientific advisor in the UK in, in working internationally and what, what's been kind of effective and rewarding and what's been challenging and, and, and difficult? Yeah, just uh, one other thing, just to build on, on what's been said and what Sheila said about the evolution of the US system. I mean, it's true here as well that essentially the notion of a government chief scientific advisor arose during the Second World War, actually, and it came out from that a bit later on that it then crystallised. And of course, there is nothing like a, a crisis that suddenly puts technical scientific things right at the centre, and that's what we've seen over the past two years. I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating working with advisors from around the world on this. And probably the earliest part of that was in January 2020, when we first started making contact with colleagues in China, and then in Singapore. But we were having also some regular calls with the then US Chief Scientific Advisor, Canadian New Zealand, Australia, a small group of us were talking about various things relating to science advice anyway. And that very quickly morphed into, we should be building this to talk about COVID. And it grew quite rapidly, actually, into telephone calls of about 50 different people from different countries around the world. In fact, it became a bit overwhelming. So what actually started as quite a useful forum rapidly became extremely big and became therefore, I think, rather more difficult to have the sorts of conversations that needed to happen. So certainly what happened from my perspective is 
we, we of course attended those calls, but started to get groupings of people around the world that would speak to each other in order to be able to have a much more informal discussion around what was happening. And that was true uh, in countries in the East. And as I say, Singapore was particularly helpful, actually, um, for us very early on. Japan was very helpful. We had calls with South Korea. But then uh, after a while, because it was obvious there was a sort of geographical element to this, which was incredibly relevant, um, a group of us in Europe started to have regular calls, which we did every couple of weeks and still do every couple of weeks, with no agenda but just the reality of talking about what we were facing in each country. And that has turned out to be, I think, fantastically important as a mechanism. It's allowed science advisors to share experiences. It's allowed people to speak off the record about what they're facing and how they can think about it. And of course, surprise, surprise, you know, many of the things that we're all facing are exactly the same. These calls have, have been unified by that, including, you know, the difficulties in the concept of an exponential curve, you know, the, the very foundation of a pandemic, you know, these are not intuitive things for people to get their heads around. And politicians around the world, I think, have struggled um, with really understanding the implications of exponential curves. So that group's been important. And of course, the, as Sheila has, has alluded to, the, they've all got rather different roles. And many of them have been medical advisors rather than, than, than science advisors in, in, in the way my role is. But I've done it together with the chief medical officer in the UK. It's been very valuable. And we've done the same in the US as well, um, speaking to both Eric Lander, but then on a much more regular basis to Tony Fauci as well. So these links across the world have been very, very powerful and important. Recently, the links to South Africa have been incredibly important around the Omicron variant, and they've attended some of the meetings we've organised, and um, we've had lots of good, informal, direct discussions, and that's really been the power of these alliances and networks. And is it interesting, I mean, just to probe that, I mean, so that going on, as it were, in the background has been, as you are saying, a very important mechanism for sharing learning, for building up a kind of an understanding when some of these sort of international questions become difficult, how has that network operated? So, for example, in questions about, you know, borders and controlling borders and regimes for uh, safely crossing borders, that's been very contentious and quite understandably quite politicised at times. And I'd be interested in, you know, how that set of informal conversations sort of managed some of those political tensions. And then I might invite Sheila to come in um, on, on some of those questions, too. Well, I'll give you one example which turned out to be relatively easy that was early on, and that was in the calls I was talking about, which um, we, we started off with, with the US right at the beginning. And that was, we all decided that what should happen during this is publications related to COVID should all be open access. And nobody disagreed with that. And we wrote a letter that actually went to all of the publishers and others, and they immediately came on board with it. That was a really good example of something that was relatively straightforward. It was not a political issue. It was one that was to do with science and information. You raise the question about things like border policies, which are incredibly difficult. They are, of course, are policy questions. So the, the challenge that we had as science advisors, and we discussed this amongst various groups of us who got together, was what are the scientific principles that we all think are the ones that matter? So issues like, importation of cases is important when you have low rates in your country and higher rates elsewhere. That's when border measures become particularly important. If you have very high levels in your country and low levels elsewhere, then border measures may be attractive politically for various reasons, or may be attractive because 
history tells us that during all plagues and infections and so on, people always worry about the other person, the other country, the other group, the non-you who might bring it in. So it's always a contentious area. So I think those sorts of principles and how you might detect things effectively, so things like temperature screening at airports, was something that would have been discussed. And people said, well, actually, that's not a very good way of picking up entry of infections. Those things were the areas that science advisors would speak about. And from that, be able to take a consistent science view back into policy discussions, which then have all the other complicated political inputs, economic inputs and others, which are crucial when people start making policy decisions and recommendations. So I think the contentious bit around, you know, borders really lay in the political space, not in the science space. If I might jump in a little bit there, Rob, uh, and Sir Patrick as well, that distinction between the science space and the political space is really difficult to preserve in practice. The two are interwoven in all kinds of ways that may not come across immediately. So the US is a complicated country. Uh, Britain is also federal in some senses, but not as profoundly so as our 50 states that have very different ideas of where science fits in and where expert advice fits in, in relation to government. And across America, we've seen an enormous set of disparities in the degree to which you know, what any scientist might consider to be responsible and cautious, prudent, prudent scientific advice has been accepted by the political leaders of these countries, I mean, of these states. It indicates that the very decision, does the scientific advice measure up to the levels of plausibility and rigor that a public should be able to rely on it and decisions should be made on the basis of that? Is that a scientific question or is that a political question? I mean, that is who decides on the su sufficiency of the evidence. And this is not just limited to America where the answers have been very disparate, but also in a number of European countries and even in Australia, where the question of borders has been significant, not just vis-a-vis -vis the country and other countries, but even internally. I mean, can Western Australia erect barriers against travelers coming from Queensland? I mean, so these have been turned into constitutional questions. And in the constitutional courts, what's being debated is a question about when is the sufficiency of the evidence something that the executive branch can decide on its own, as opposed to, for instance, needing to go to the legislature for a delineation of what the emergency powers are of the executive and so on and so forth. So this matter of a science advisory mechanism deciding on the sufficiency of the evidence is always going to be tinged with politics. And my observation based on you know years of comparative research is that the the authority of the science advisor goes back and depends to some degree on the traditions by which this sort of valve-like position of science advice sits in relation to the overall credibility of a governmental apparatus. It's no secret that in America these days, the credibility of the governmental apparatus overall is in tatters, and science advice has suffered from that. So I'd be quite interested in hearing your reactions about the 
sort of relative public approval and public satisfaction with the role of science advice in this extremely contested political period that we've been going through? It's a really interesting question and, and set of observations. And in, in the UK, we've had a mechanism for bringing together academic and uh, government science advice into a group called SAGE, Science uh, um, Advice for Government Emergencies, which has then fed the four nations. And of course, they haven't necessarily made the same decisions. And so your point is sort of illustrated there as well. But the source science advice has basically been the same across all of the four nations of the UK. Political decision-making and discussions of sufficiency have differed, and that's always going to be the case. So what that comes back to, I think, and I'd be interested in your view, Sheila, on this, is uh, there is a primary role, I think, of a science advisor, which is to be able to articulate uncertainty and to be able to try to frame current scientific evidence in a way of a central estimate, but what the things are that would make that wrong would drive that in another direction. And when there may be more information that would alter that outcome, because there's both the immediate uncertainty and then there's the temporal uncertainty that you may well be getting more information in six weeks time. You may not get it for two years. You may get it in two weeks. And I think politicians need to understand that temporal uncertainty as well as the immediate uncertainty around what influences the evidence today and where that central estimate lies in terms of a range. Um, and I think you're right, it must be true, that how that advice is then received and dealt with relies a lot on what the current government structure is and indeed what the level of trust that's been built up uh, around that because by definition governments are going to be or politicians are going to be less able to second guess the science but of course they can at least come in with a view of whether they think this is a reliable process and they will need to bring in all of the other considerations that politicians must take into account for making a decision which are far far broader than the than the science advice alone so the science advice can never be the only thing that's taken into account, and it cannot be the decision maker. And you can see that, as, as you said, right the way around the world, where basically very similar advice has gone into different policy decisions as a result of that. And I think there are many things that feed into why you end up with different policy decisions. I mean, I think that the dust needs to settle on the pandemic before we have a serious accounting of the role that science played. I think one of the things that you're pointing to, Sir Patrick, is the question of how well coordination occurred across countries at the same time as the other question that we've been dwelling on, that is, how did science advice play out inside of countries? And I think that the balance sheet would probably end up being a little bit different on the international front and, and the uh, domestic front. But just from the American side, it's, it's actually interesting the degree to which the formal apparatus of science advice to some degree got overtaken by events. So I think if one were to go around and ask 
people on the street, if they had any answer to this in America at all, you know, who is the government's chief scientific advisor during the pandemic? Many people would say it's Dr. Fauci, even though that is not his role. But that is an indication of phenomenon that I think is not so common across other countries. I mean, if you went to Germany and said, who is the government's chief scientific advisor, people would probably scratch their heads and they might say something about the Robert Koch Institute, but they probably wouldn't say anything about a single person at all. And so the embodiment of science advice in a person who actually does not have that role officially in the US and the disembodiment of science advice in both France and Germany, for instance, where I think people would be hard put to it to identify a single face or a single spokesperson. You know, that all speaks to, I think, a a very different sort of attitude toward the way in which expertise should be integrated into government. And I think one of the findings of the kind of comparative work that some of us have been doing will end up being a verdict on overall relations between a government and its ability to persuade people that it's doing things in the public interest. I think in that respect, even though an early finding of our own comparative research was that the early responses in the UK had fallen more into the chaotic category than into the consensus category, and certainly not into the control category that we see in China. Um, Over a longer period of time, it may be that the UK will come out doing better than the US in terms of forging a national consensus around what needs to be done. If those kinds of findings hold up, then I think we'll have to go back and study the sort of broader set of social understandings that tie the government to the people in some ways. I mean, I think that in America, we're living through, again, a widely recognized period of polarization that that none of us have seen in our lifetimes. I mean, I think already one can say that science is not powerful enough to bridge that kind of polarization, that what happens if politics is so polarized is that science becomes part of the mincemeat, that science gets polarized in the same way. So there is that very profound connection between what we call the social compact that ties government to the people and the capacity of science to be advisory in a productive way that I think we will need to study further as the pandemic hopefully dies down in this new year that we've begun. I'd be interested in your view, Sheila. Obviously, many, many different science views expressed publicly. And what scientists are used to hearing lots of views on a topic and the way science advances is by challenge to existing consensus, an experiment that might overturn something, a debate which allows ideas to progress. And that's been actually what's happened during the pandemic, you know, Things, ideas have been overturned, people have got more evidence, things have changed, which is a normal part of the scientific process. It's easy to portray that as sort of science being somewhat chaotic and who do you believe? And it's also difficult sometimes, I think, for politicians who don't like changing. I mean, it's a U-turn, it's a U-turn for the media, it's a U-turn for a politician 
it's actually part of normal scientific progress for a scientist very often. I'd just be interested in your thoughts on that sort of difference between how change and uncertainty are embraced in different groups. Well, I think that the um, what you described as a U-turn has often been picked up as flip-flopping in the American context. And you're absolutely right. I think that policymakers don't like to be seen as saying one thing one day and a different thing the next day. I've often thought that, that um, in this respect, people who give parental advice have it right, that uh, children appreciate a certain kind of consistency of advice from uh, their elders. And in that respect, I think governments have also come to be seen in loco parentis to some extent, and, and people lose confidence in government if it's saying one thing one day and a radically different thing another day. But I think that there's the responsibility for the sort of loss of credibility that has come about from some of the U-turns, that that responsibility has to be shared between the science community and the political community. Because although scientists recognize in their own work that the findings are provisional, that tomorrow's experiment might undo the results of today, when science speaks out to the public, it doesn't usually talk the language of uncertainty and judgment. It often talks in terms of facts and the very stability of what we currently know. Now, these sort of public pronouncements achieve a kind of stickiness that they don't have in the pages of scientific journals. I mean, it's perfectly understandable that you might publish something even in Science or Nature one day, and three months later, you could have a result that contradicts that. And nobody would think twice about it because they would realize that the first result was done well enough under all the conditions that prevailed then. But if you take that decision out to the public and say, for instance, something that had a lot of impact in America, that you don't need to wear masks, and then suddenly you do a U-turn and say masks are the thing, that they are the solution when we know so little about many of the other dimensions of the epidemic. The, the first decision or the first pronouncement had a stickiness and a gravitas and a weight that a purely scientific finding inside of a scientific journal would not have had. Now, if the original advice had come packaged from the start saying, based on what we now know, you know, if every science, if every bit of science advice always had that as its initial formulation, based on what we now know, based on what we currently know, I think that the overall credibility of science advice might actually benefit. I agree. Instead of saying that the facts support this and you must do this. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that because, you know, it's the very point that the public very often, I think, think of science as a collection of absolute facts. Most scientists do not think of science in that way. And I think it's to overcome that difference. And even when things are articulated in terms of uncertainty and on the basis of what we know now, that's often not how it's heard. So I think there is something quite profound here about how science advice is communicated to ensure that this is understood, that this is this is what is known today. And it's true for politicians, communicating to politicians as well. It's not an absolute fact. But then, but then to, to cycle back to some earlier points on our discussion that, you know, 
what is it that's conditioning that conversation between the advisor, the decision maker and the wider public? It's, it's you know, the scientist. I don't know, Sheila, do you think that the scientist advisor can really sort of determine how that message is communicated? Is it is it not very much also conditioned on the relationship that the political decision maker has with the citizens and, and the people that are being governed? Well, this is where I think that the problem becomes really knotty because as we've seen during the pandemic, the science advice is falling into a sort of roiling set of developments that, you know, have brought about enormous changes. I mean, everybody who's begun to travel in the last six or eight months knows that, you know, tickets are being cancelled from one day to the next. One country may erect a barrier against travelers from another country. So things are changing very, very fast. The solutions that people have developed over the years in science advice, I mean, to me, they're well illustrated in the history of the now defunct Office of Technology Assessment that used to advise the U.S. Congress for about 20 years back you know, from about the mid-1970s to about the mid-1990s. So one of the practical solutions that the OTA developed was to create alternative scenarios and not say, this is what science says you should do, but to say, if you take this set of conclusions coming out of the science as determinative, then here's one set of policy options, but under a different scenario, where you, for instance, accord less credibility to this particular finding, or you want to be more cautious and take a precautionary stance, this is a different scenario. And here's a different set of options. Now, people agreed that this was a very responsible way of offering science advice, the scenario model, go this way, and these will be the costs and benefits and go that way, and it'll be a different set of costs and benefits. The problem is that during a crisis, you don't have a chance to be deliberative in the same way. You you can't tell government, you know, if you want this many deaths, do this. And it, I mean, people don't want to hear that. So I think that the way that science advice has to operate during crisis mode is quite different during from the way it operates during peacetime mode. And it's worth remembering that the OTA was ultimately found to be useless by the US Congress and was simply eliminated. And so that deliberative approach turned out to be politically unsuccessful in the most radical sense, because today the US Congress does not have a technical advisory arm in the way that it had in that period from the 70s to the 90s. Um, So, you know, maybe as uh, part of our wind up, I would love to hear what Sir Patrick thinks about the challenges of maintaining credibility for science advice when politics seems to be the overwhelming pressure, when people are clamoring not to, you know, even have to wear masks in the London underground, you know, which is in some sense a reasonable enough precaution, public health experts would say. So what about in times of crisis when science's own sort of procedures of deliberation seem to be antithetical to what people need and want? Well, I think you're right that there there needs to be, particularly at the public health messaging end, there needs to be a message. And that message doesn't fit well with scenarios. I think at the political end, scenarios still work better, but there as well, you can see that what people will want to latch onto is the extremes of scenarios. And that's the danger during an emergency. So whether it's the 
extreme gloomy scenario or the extreme optimistic scenario, people will pick and choose and you, they will present things in the way that they want them to be heard according to that. So I think scenarios have their place and they're very important during normal uh, practice. They're actually quite, I think they are still important during emergencies, but they're not ones that you can then easily articulate I think, to the public who are looking for a public health message. And that's where I think the discipline of public health becomes an important one on top of, you know, generic and wide science advice. Well, thank you both so much for, for joining us for this first discussion. I mean, I'm really hoping that people listening who are, you know, considering giving more time to science advice, those people that are calling on and using science advisors um, will find the conversation helpful and, and hearing the that combination of, of the experience that's Patrick, you've developed, uh, you know, in the amazing kind of role that you've played over the last four years and Sheila's uh, sort of scholarship over, over several decades on these questions, helpful and enlightening and, and invigorating. So thank you both Sheila and Patrick for, for joining us. Thank you. CSAP's Science and Policy podcast is hosted by me, Rob Doubleday, produced by Jessica Foster and supported by researcher Nick Kostick. This series on science advice and government is brought to you in partnership with the research project Expertise Under Pressure, part of the Centre for the Humanities and Social Change at the University of Cambridge. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please do follow, subscribe and share with your network. Thanks for listening. Music